God, we're going to pause just a bit longer for the stillness in the sanctuary to catch us. Please teach us this morning, grow us. May we leave changed. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you, Mike and Rochelle, parents of three young ones, for leading this morning. It is so good to be back with you and open the scriptures together this morning. It's been about six weeks since I've done this. August at Calamesa gives me a time to not only have a break and listen to other people feed me and feed us, but it also gives me a chance to look at the entire next calendar year and look at topics and do some in-depth study. So I'm very grateful for that time away. We also had a ministers meeting, and they call it a ministerial um, convocation or association meeting. 700 ministers in Ontario a couple weeks ago. That was just enough to make your skin crawl. Started looking around since I haven't been a minister all my life. I start looking around at these people and say, am I really this? <laughs> wow. Interesting. We heard George Knight. I'm still thinking and processing th some things George Knight challenged us with. A good time together. Now, last Sabbath, if you were here, Pastor Dan mentioned that several of us were at Women of Faith down in Anaheim. It was 150 tickets Marianne Crispins ordered that she coordinated on behalf of the church. 150 of us joined 15,000 women down there. I have a new name for this place, by the way, the Estrogen Zone. Fifth, 150 from here it is an interesting venue. People will come to, well, we call it the Anaheim Pond, don't we? The Honda Center. People will come to the Honda Center and think about God and dabble a little when they don't feel quite safe to come with you and I into a church. So the event is worth it for that reason alone. 15,000 women in the estrogen zone down there last weekend. We're crossing the street from the parking lot at one of the stopping lights. They felt like they were just forever long. And the longer you waited, the more women pooled around you and, and the more and more force there was. At one point, there were cars of men out in the street and one car full of men yelled out, Who are you women going to see tonight? What show? On Friday night, what show are you going to see? very capable woman in the front of the pack said, we're going to see God. <laughs> God. So here, last Sabbath, when Pastor Dan opened the Word of God, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and he was to spill into chapter 3, by the way, if you heard the sermon. When he opened those verses and spoke about the household relationships, there was another group of people. There were in the estrogen zone. That text was being mentioned also. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, what happens in Anaheim stays in Anaheim. Well, let me tell you, just a few days before that, driving down Interstate 5, down that lonely stretch where there's nothing but, you know, dirt and odors and radio evangelists. There was another interpretation of 1 Peter, chapter 3 in particular. 
A young woman calling into a radio evangelist. A young woman has just become a Christian, and she's married to someone who is not a Christian, and he actually doesn't have a lot of respect for her decision, and he's decided to express this in violent outrages at home. And she's frightened and doesn't know what to do and isn't sure she can stand this kind of a life. And the very calm radio evangelist said to this young woman asking for counsel, well, the Bible is very clear about what you should do. 1 Peter 3 teaches you, you must stay in your home and submit to this authority and do it with a smile on your face because one day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will win this abusive man over to God. That was not quite the take in the estrogen zone, by the way. Difficult passages in 1 Peter. 105 verses, that's all it is. 100 words. 105 words for a a church that needs to be fortified. A suffering church and a faithful church. Faithful because they've committed to a new way of life, a Christian way of life. Faithful because it's very different than their old life, and they're not really sure what's up ahead. Faithful to the point of suffering. A suffering church because not everyone else has chosen this new life. Suffering because the government hasn't chosen the new life. Suffering because not even entire family units have made this choice together. It is to a faithful and suffering church that 1 Peter has been written. These are words which are to fortify and encourage. We'll start in chapter 3 this morning. 13. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts Sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'll stop there. These are the words of comfort for the suffering church, there to suffer along with Christ. Suffer? These are encouraging words. These are words that bring strength. These are words that fortify. Several times in 1 Peter is the invitation to suffer. Here's another one in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Verse 13, another invitation to suffer. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. 
Not let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Isn't that an interesting thing to be in the line with murderers and thieves? None of you suffer now as a mischief maker, the evil of a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God, because God's name you bear. And verse 19, another invitation to suffer. Therefore, let those suffer in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Rejoice in your sufferings, and again I say rejoice, and again I say suffer, and again I say suffer over and over. In First Peter is the same invitation. I've heard the refrain often growing up Christian, haven't you? And sometimes we interpret the refrain in a variety of ways. By the way, those of you here this morning who have taken great comfort in the suffering Jesus and in a suffering God who sends his son to the world, those of you who have taken great comfort bodily when your bodies ache and are broken, I don't want to detract from the comfort that First Peter is to you as you read. I'd like to read something additional besides that. For yes, we suffer. We have achy joints and we have challenging children and we have financial crises in our life. Yes, of course, we suffer. Rejoice in your sufferings, the text says. And if you're a Christian, expect to suffer a little more. Were you taught this growing up? I certainly was. Life is difficult enough, but if you're a Christian, it's going to be worse harder, more difficult, almost as if if it's not difficult, you really probably aren't having a Christian experience yet. It felt to me a little like going to the orthodontist. In those days, and I've already apologized to our orthodontia friends, when they take the pliers to the wires, and then they twist and they clamp down, and you're doing so good at holding still, it's as if they wait until you first jump. Now they know they gotcha, and they twist a little further. There, got it. And as I get up out of the chair, and the little tears are on my face, and the orthodontist pats me on the back and says, it'll only hurt for a few days, it'll be good for you. Be good for your teeth. Be good for your mouth. Mom, it's probably a good day for a milkshake. It's probably not going, doing good if it doesn't hurt. When we put our ice skates on to skate in the wintertime, put them up over your ankles, that leather that already tucks and cuts into your skin, and then you take those strings and you bind them. You go around and around again and you bind hard because, because if it's not hurting, it's probably not going to support your ankle when you go out on the ice. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be so fun when you get out on the ice. If it's not hurting, probably not doing any good. We do it with our body. We fatigue our muscles. We fatigue our mind. We work it and work it and work it until there's pain. And when there's pain, when we suffer, we're probably making progress. It is the Christian way. And First Peter seems to be singing our song. There are, however, in First Peter, no milkshakes of comfort. There is, rather, an invitation to go through the fiery ordeal doing good. It's problematic when the problems of our world, our modern world, and our contemporary world are read back into the text and into the world of First Peter. 
It's one of the challenges we have trying to understand those house code texts Dan began last week. For example, in the modern world, there is such a thing as a legal system. There is such a thing as battery and assault charges. There are people surrounding you, and it is an inalienable right. In the United States of America, you don't have to suffer that way. Our contemporary world is different than the world of First Peter. If you are a citizen or a slave or a spouse, there is a system that will rescue you and stand up for you and make sure you survive. But the residents in First Peter have their back up against the wall. There is no legal system for them. In fact, they are already so much marginalized. They're already so cornered that many of these Christians are in legal trouble because they are Christians. These slaves have no rights, whatever kind of slaves they are. These spouses have no rights. These citizens have no, they have no rights already. Their back is up against the wall. It isn't little house on the prairie. This isn't advice for how to have happy, comfortable domestic relationships. This is advice for if you're probably already going to die, what should you do? You should do good. You should bless First Peter goes on to stay. It's problematic when we read our problems of today's world back onto the text of First Peter. They have their back up against the wall in a way you and I really don't much experience. Have you ever been persecuted for being a Christian? Some of you from other countries and in other experiences in the mission fields would answer yes. Most of us raised in America who stayed in America all of our lives, we would have to answer no closest I've come to religious persecution is being fired because I couldn't work on Sabbath. I thought I should sue. But there's advice in First Peter about that. I'll come back to that. How much religious persecution have you endured? Back, up against the wall. You have no other options. That's the house code advice in 1 Peter 3. I was once tied up in a gymnasium back to school. I was just a first grader. I didn't know a whole lot about these social relationships. A little boy put me under the wooden hand railing, between the hand railing and the cement wall. Took a big, thick plastic rope and tied me in place and said, now stay there. Okay, because where are you going to go? Your back is up against the wall. That is the situation in First Peter. Stay there until you marry me, he said. <laughs> he should have tied my legs. Christians living in very specific situations with their collective back up against the wall. This is First Peter. It's problematic when we misjudge the magnitude of their sufferings compared with our sufferings. And this isn't to say we don't suffer. Their sufferings are political threats. Their suffering is, is that when they gather together, they're being accused of disrupting the social order, being so disruptive that maybe the government's threatened. Perhaps there would be a revolt. It's a closely controlled environment they live in. They have no power, none of them. By the way, when you read you in 1 Peter, you should do this or you should do that, you, please read you all. It's plural most all the time in 1 Peter. When you all are suffering, you all should do good rather than evil. You all should suffer for the sake of good. It's a collective you most all the way through the letter. Christians with their back up against the wall. 
What is very clear is that there will be suffering, and what is also very clear is if you are going to suffer, it's inevitable, it will happen, then there is a choice about how you respond, as Dan said last week. It matters what you do when you know you're going to suffer. It is another way Peter is milking and massaging, be holy, for I am holy, the first of the letter. Be holy, you people, you chosen royal priesthood, for I am holy. Even when your back is up against the wall, do good. In several ways, several times over and over again, Peter tries to help us understand that. Keep your conscience clear, he says. Don't let suffering be because you've done some evil. Don't let the suffering that comes to you, don't, don't, let, don't you be a contributor to that suffering at all. Don't let any evil thing you've done contribute to the suffering you'll endure. That's an interesting thought now for us today, where we live in our context. In the years 2006, 2007, many books have been released. I don't know if you were watching this at all. Many books have been released with a hostile, angry attitude towards not only Christians, but people of all faith. Faithful pilgrims and the way we conduct ourselves in the world. There are an abundance of these kinds of books that that describe Christians and other faithfuls as people, other faithful people as ones who create our own problems. We're alienated because of our own behavior, because of our own obnoxious contributions to the world. Christians have a problem because of Christians. First Peter says, don't contribute to the evil in the world. It's an interesting thing. Christians suffering because of what Christians have done. While we were down there in the estrogen zone of Anaheim, there was a man, there was a man with a tent placard on. There is always one like this somewhere, one person. Texts and words all over. I don't know if any of the rest of you who went saw, women of faith is evil. And he was armed with pamphlets and texts. And women were coming by and engaging him in conversation. And I thought, don't, just let him be. Let him be. Oh, he was having such a good time. <laughs> if you want to ruin his day, just walk on by. But no, they were engaging and the religious, the shouting was going back and forth. I'm not sure anyone contributes to any good in those shouting matches. Peter says, sometimes you're ridiculed because of the evil you contribute in the world. Don't let it be that way. These books that are being written, challenging, chastising, critiquing faithful people in the world. One of them in particular I've been reading all summer, the God is not great book. Mark referenced it in August. Christopher Hitchens, he makes an assertion, assertion that religion and its faithful pilgrims multiply hatred in the world, that we've left humanity at risk, and that we need to be extinguished, but we really won't need any help. We'll extinguish ourselves if people just leave us alone long enough. Isn't that an ugly critique? Christians, he says, and other faithful people. He makes this uh, thought, I'll quote, I leave it to the faithful to burn each other's churches and mosques and synagogues, which they can always be relied upon to do. The faithful seem to be able to persecute one another just fine. At the hands of the faithful, so much suffering is endured. 
Is it just the signs of the times? We often say as Christians, well, we know the Bible predicts we'll suffer. Ugly things will happen. There will be bloodshed. There will be violence. Does, does that give us license as Christians to be abusive with our positions in the world? Do we have permission somehow to pursue the unpopular and, and that which is offensive to people? The text says, don't contribute to the evil in the world. If you're going to suffer, suffer because of good. It's so clear. Don't participate in this. So here are the Christians contributing to the problem. Sometimes Christians participate in the problems of the world. Peter says, don't do it. Don't do it. So at Women of Faith, we see a man doing it. Is he all right? Is he justified in his position? Like he can say whatever he wants in the world. He'll be persecuted. There will be suffering. First Peter says, don't do it. Don't participate because of that. Remember what the text says. Always be ready to share the hope you have and do it with gentleness. Always be ready to share the hope that's inside of you, but do it with gentleness and reverence. What the world needs, a world that's already making critiques about faithful people who's tossed us away to a large degree, what the world could use are faithful people who know how to express their hope with reverence and gentleness. Would you agree? The world has had enough of the other. Faithful people who contribute to the evil in the world. Don't suffer for that, Peter says. If you're going to suffer, suffer for contributing to the good. When the text says, always be ready to share the hope that you have, a, a Bible text we often use for those of us in the Adventist church, always be ready to say the doctrines you know. Always be ready to give a defense of what you believe. And the text doesn't say that at all. The text says, be ready to give a defense with reverence and gentleness of the hope you have. You have hope when your back is up against the wall? You have a hope when you see so much evil in the world? You have a hope when you see faithful people hurting other faithful people? Yes. In 1 Peter, he outlines it from beginning to end. You were pilgrims. You were in Egypt. The God who, who went to the cross, the Jesus Christ who went to the cross and suffered the death to end all suffering. This Jesus is now resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of God. And because the author of 1 Peter can see that and has a vision for that, he allows that to bring meaning into the present suffering. That is what's awaiting you. Therefore, when you suffer now, do it with hope. Something else is coming. Be ready to share with the world the reason you have hope and do it with reverence and gentleness. Could it be, I keep asking the question every few weeks, what is it that Adventist Christians can contribute in the world? What is it the remnant should be prepared to do? Could Adventist Christians be the ones to share hope in a, a fashion of reverence and gentleness? Could that be us? You have to think about it. Could that be us? Another thought on suffering that I'd like to share with you, the mystery of suffering that's in 1 Peter. It is mysterious, and I believe that Peter, I don't know if it's done this way intentionally, but I'm always just a little bit grateful when I find texts like this that are ambiguous. 
and they are subject to a lot of translation and much work for them to say what we want them to say. There is a mysteriousness about suffering that Peter hasn't even resolved. When you get to the passage we read at the beginning in verse 3, 1 Peter 3, chapter 17, the text said, For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will. This is my translation, New Revised. That's the New Revised translation. It's better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. Now, some of your translations say it is better if it is God's will. Do you have a translation like that? If it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good. Eugene Peterson's translation says, it is better to suffer for good if that's what God wants. And the text is open to some translation challenges, and often the way it gets interpreted is that somehow our suffering and God's will are intertwined so that it becomes our suffering is God's will. And this morning, I want to challenge that interpretation, and I hope to never hear it in an Adventist church again. For there is uncertainty the way Peter writes. If, if God were to will it so, is actually a good translation right there. Suffer for good, not evil. Even Peter's trying to understand suffering in the world. If God were to will it, don't really know how this is working. I do know we're suffering. I do know there's good. And I do know there's evil. There is terrible theology of Christian suffering available in the world. We don't need anyone else to do this for us. Somehow Christians, Christianity has done this fairly well from the beginning. A, a, a Christian theology of suffering that's fairly common from the early days of Christianity goes like this. There is evil in the world, and there are faithful people in the world. Faithful people need to remain faithful, and sometimes God will send faithful people trials or suffering for the purpose of refining them and giving them an option to become more faithful and to grow in the soul refiner's argument that when they come out the other side of these trials and sufferings, they'll be stronger for the suffering God gave them. And that if they fail at these small sufferings, how will they stand when larger sufferings come and larger trials come? And so this is one way God refines and polishes the soul of a Christian is to send trials and sufferings and hope that we'll grow strong through them. I hope we'll never teach that theology in this church. We do suffer with God we do suffer with Jesus Christ, but I think it's a little more like Jesus comes into the world and because he pushes against the patterns and the, the ways of the world and because the way he moves about the world is so offensive, he suffers and he dies, yes. And when we choose to move around the world the way Jesus moved around the world and we oppose those patterns and we oppose that which is uh, in the way of God's plan for the kingdom, then we suffer too. And so in some degree, we suffer along with Jesus Christ in conducting ourselves as Christians in the world. But would you please never be, never be confused about where the suffering comes from. The suffering doesn't come from God. And we may never use 1 Peter as our proof texts to try and prove it. You'll have to go somewhere else in the Bible 
And then we can have the conversation all over again. But even more powerful than that for me is the biblical text itself. When it comes to the idea of suffering, the text has already told us Christ suffered in the flesh so that we could be finished with sin. He suffered so that we could be reunited with God, chapter 3 says. He suffered so nobody else has to suffer. That's what the Bible teaches. So we can be sure when we suffer, it isn't because God sent it to us. Jesus suffered for sins. We suffer because of sins. But they really will never be the same. How could you and I ever suffer the way the one suffered who removes all sin from the world? And isn't that good news? When Kirby and I had been married a few years, he, he had heard this song I played often, Rachmaninoff in C-sharp minor. It's the most difficult song I ever learned. I learned it when I was 14. And in the key of C-sharp with four, at least four sharps there, and there were so many notes, they don't fit my fingers. It's one of those songs where you need a, a large breadth a large reach, and so you, you drop out notes in the middle and your hands move all over the keyboard. And, and I learned it early, and I played it for every talent show we ever had and every special occasion, Rachmaninoff in C-sharp minor. And it came to be that one Sabbath afternoon I put a CD in. Someone had given us a CD of Rachmaninoff, and I put the music on. You'll listen to a few measures. of music. Put the CD in. Kirby listened. He said, who is that? Who is that playing your song? <laughs> who are they? They're not very good. <laughs> they should hear you play Rachmaninoff. This is very sweet, but it's very... Kirby... It's Rachmaninoff playing the C-sharp prelude. It is, it is the composer. It is the master at those four sharps. What do you mean, who is this playing? Listen to the way he plays. He should hear you. As you drop your notes in the middle and you struggle to keep up with the timing, there's only one master of Rachmaninoff prelude in C-sharp minor. It's Rachmaninoff. There is only one person capable of suffering for sin in the world. It is not you. It is not me. As a church, 
We can spend our time working on suffering and doing good and suffering and doing good and thinking this is how God is refining our character. Or we can say there's only one master of sin in the world. Thanks be to God. And then we could use our time for something else. That is what I want to talk about next week. The church could use its time for something else. Suffering we endure, but it is not our calling. Thanks be to God. Now to the God, the one God who suffers so you do not suffer, children of Kalamasa. To this God be glory and honor and power. To this God, and because of this God, we now live in our world. We stand good for his kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.